0: The question that I want to ask you this evening is, who are you living for? Who or what are you living for? As you think about, just think about for a moment, your life over the past week and all that you've done. Most of you have probably been quite active and involved and maybe too busy going to and from work or to and from school and uh, getting places on the tee, riding your bike, jumping in the car. Rushing off to church this last Sunday, perhaps. Who are you living for? What's it all for? Why do you go about doing all the things that you do? This is the question, if you will, that Lent as a season puts before us as the people of God. The right answer to the question is God. We live for God and we live for Him alone. But the real answer to that question is pretty complicated. In our lives. We've all got different competing. Interests and little g gods. And things that we're. Really seeking after. And thus we have the season. Of Lent which is really a season for confronting our own double mindedness. And confessing it. Forsaking it. Repenting of it. And asking for God to renew us. In the life that we know that we're called to live, which is a life that's lived for him and for him alone. This reading from Matthew 6 raises this question, who are we living for before us? Jesus shows us two things in this text about those who do live for God. And I want to just point those things out briefly as we prepare to come and receive the ashes on our forehead by this time in the Word. The first thing that Jesus says... And this is really interesting when you look at this text in Matthew 6. You notice what he says, he says in <clears throat> three times. He says he takes these three practices, these three disciplines. He says when you give to the needy, verse 2. Verse 5, when you pray, and verse 16, when you fast. It's not if you give to the needy, if you pray, Or if you fast. It's when. So the first thing that we see from Matthew 6. That Jesus teaches us about those who live their lives for God. Is that they engage in these practices. These spiritual disciplines if you will. That we put a focus on and a spotlight on. Once again at the beginning of the season of Lent. But that certainly are not meant only for the season of Lent by any means. It's not if but when. When you give to the poor, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast. Think about what you're saying when you practice these disciplines in your life. When you give to the needy, you're saying, look, my hope is not like so much of our culture. My hope is not in money. I'm not hoping for my life to come out of the stuff that I have. I'm giving it away because in some way I'm in solidarity with those who are in great need because their creator is my creator the god who loves them is the god who loves me and you're showing that we're not i don't live for money think about when you pray what you're saying when you pray prayer is hard we know that prayer is hard most of us struggle with prayer but when we pray we're saying my life is not i'm not capable of living my life within my own frame of reference by my efforts, my gifts, my talents, my resources, my opportunities. I can't live in that way. And I need help. And every time that you stop and you pray in your life, whether that's when you're on the tee or when you're on your knees in a locked room, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, you're saying, I can't do this on my own and I need God's help. I need the help of someone from, the outside, of my, from outside of my life and my frame of reference. To help me to come alongside. To give his power and his strength. To give his grace and his mercy. To give the gifts that I know I so desperately want. To be loved. To have a purpose. A vision for my life. These things I need from someone else. And so we pray. And that's what we say when we pray. Prayer is meaningless. In this frame of reference. But it means everything. When we acknowledge that there is a God who hears us. And what are we saying when we fast? When we fast, some of you might be hungry right now if you've been fasting today. What are we saying when we fast? We're saying that my ultimate need and desire is for you, Lord. That food and drink and pleasures, these things that we will fast from over the course of the next 40 days, is wonderful as they are, these are simply the gifts of your good creation. And while they make my life joyful in some ways, and they satisfy me in some ways, they don't ultimately bring me life. And when we refrain from those things, We're saying, God, you are my life. And we're being reminded when we hunger for food that we've been depriving ourselves of or when we long to have that drink of coffee in week five or six in our Lenten practices and we don't, we're reminded that what I really need is not what I want or crave. But it's God. He's who I ultimately need. He's the only one who ultimately satisfies me. So the first thing in this is just Jesus saying those who live for God will practice these things and they'll practice these things because they know deeply that God is their life. And they're living for him. It's not that these things magically give us God, but it's that God has given us by his wisdom and through the wisdom of the church, these disciplines, these practices that do put us into that place where we're encountering him and his grace in new ways and that's why Jesus says when you give to the needy when you pray and when you fast because those who are part of my kingdom will do these things because they long for me but as Jesus always makes a point of taking things to the next level the second point from this text which is really the main point of this text is that simply doing these things in terms of the external motions is not an indicator of one who's living their life for God. And Jesus contrasts those who do these things for the right reasons with those who do these things for the wrong reasons. The whole text is is framed by verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then in each of these three disciplines, Jesus points out what he, who he calls the hypocrites. Those who, when they give to the needy, sound a trumpet so that everybody will see what they're doing. Those who, when they pray, do so on the street corners and in the synagogues, standing up so that everybody will see what they're doing. Those who, when they fast, will walk around and kind of moan and groan and say, Oh, this is so challenging, so that everybody will know what a great effort they're making for God. The point is really simple. That first question that I wanted you to think about, who are you living for? Jesus says that those who live in this way, those who do their righteousness, those who practice these things that lead them to God and do so for the reason of building up their worldly reputation, they're not living for the Father. They're not living for me. They're living for the praises of those around them. They're living for the glory that comes from the world. And even if we don't live in a culture, granted, where you're going to get a lot of glory because you're fasting or praying or necessarily even giving to the needy, we do live in a culture where we spend a lot of our time trying to get glory. Technology has perhaps made that even more possible with things like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and the the potential to say that it doesn't really count unless... A bunch of people like it or see it or praise you for it. We know what it's like to live our lives for something. For the praises of others. To live our lives in a way that's not ultimately for the Lord. And Jesus is striking in this text. And he says, when you do these things, do them so that nobody else will notice. What's he getting at when he says that? Don't do them for an audience. Do them for the audience of one. The only one that matters, your father. Do these things for him. Don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That's hyperbole. It's radical. And what Jesus is saying, I want you to live your life for God and for God alone. I don't want you to live your life for everybody else and for what they think and for what they say is important. I want you to live your life for him. I'll never forget hearing Joseph Sahn speak I was listening to an audio of of, of him speaking. He was a Romanian pastor who lived in communist Romania at a time when Christians were severely persecuted, and yet he was a faithful pastor. And at one point, the government put him in prison, unjustly, of course, because he was a pastor and he was gaining a reputation. He was well-loved in the underground world in Romania. And they knew that, and they put him in prison. And they told him while he was in prison, and this introduced for him this concept of stolen martyrdom, that they were going to fabricate stories about him that would undermine his reputation with his followers and his wife and his children. And he talked about this concept as a concept of stolen martyrdom, that though he would die for Christ, everybody who knew him would think that he was an imposter and a fool and a fake. And he describes sitting in that prison cell and thinking to himself, is Jesus still enough? Even if I lose all of that, all that people would think about me, And yet I know what nobody else knows, which is none of that is true. I know I've walked with him faithfully to the end. And he's asking himself the question, is that enough? And that's the question that that Jesus, in a sense, is putting before all of his disciples in Matthew 6, is saying, is your Father's praise, is your Father's appreciation, of you enough? Do you live for him and for him alone? It really drives the question home when you think about who are you when nobody else is looking? Think about that. When there is no one looking over your shoulder and Jesus says, I want you to be in that place the person who is living for God and for God alone. That's who he wants us to be. And then he goes on to say, you know, there's two kinds of treasure. And it was interesting as I was thinking about this text, I, for the first time realized that actually when Jesus in verses 19 through 21 says that um, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven, that it's just talking about money, Because he's just been talking about receiving praises. Receiving glory from people around you. That's a kind of treasure. And Jesus says, don't don't work. Don't live your life for that kind of treasure. Don't. Live your life for the treasure in heaven. Live your life for your father's good, good saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Live your life for him. And only for him. And that will last. So who are you living for? That's the question that I want us to kick off this Lenten season with. And we're going to come forward in just a moment and receive the sign of, uh, receive the ashes, the imposition of ashes on our foreheads and the sign of the cross. And that signifies two things. First, it signifies that none of us really live for God in the way that Jesus calls us to in Matthew 6. These ashes are a sign of our own sin. They're a sign of our choosing to live life for all kinds of other things. They're a sign of our trying to win the approval of other people and make that the most important thing in our life. They're a sign of us settling for the treasures of this world rather than enjoying the treasures of heaven. We need to say that to the Lord. We need to say, you know, I'd love to answer that question resoundingly. Yes, Father, I live for you and for you only. But the reality is when I'm truthful and honest, I live for myself. I live for what I think is most important, and I'm sorry. And I confess that to you, Father. That's what we say. And the second thing that these ashes signify is our mortality. Quote Genesis 3:19: when these go on your forehead, for you are dust, from, from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. And it's important, these two things are linked. Because when we forget our mortality, when we forget that we're going to return to dust, we begin to chase much more strongly after the treasures of this world. When we forget that this world is passing away, that even our own bodies, as important as they are to us, will one day return to the ground, we are much more prone to live for the things of this world. But when we remember that our life is but a breath, but we're like a flower that blossoms in the field one day and withers the next. Then, as Moses says in Psalm 90, we begin to gain a heart of wisdom, and it helps us to live again for God and for him alone, for the one thing that matters, for the one thing that lasts. This is a season to realign our lives. It's a gift. And to embrace the God who has already embraced us, who has shown us great mercy, who's washed us with the blood of his son, who's given us new life, and longs for us to live solely for him in a way that when nobody else is watching, we will seek to please him. To honor him, to praise him. Because God knows that it's only when we live that way that we're truly alive. And that when we settle for these other ways, these things to live for, that we're diminished, that we're wrapped up, that we're enslaved. The season is an invitation to come alive again. And paradoxically, we do that by remembering that we will die. And by remembering that we often willfully exchange true life for the pods that the pigs are eating in the muddy pigsty. So let's come to him. Let's come to him in confession. Let's come to him acknowledging our need. And let's ask for 40 days that God would make us a people who live for him and for him alone. God, our Father, we all know that we fall short of you and we all know that we live for other things. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray during this Lenten season, that we might come to greater levels of life, obedience, that we might know you more fully and live and build treasures that last for your glory. Amen.